Hello and welcome to India Colonized, a podcast on India's colonial history, where we unravel our colonial past through stories and legends. Our podcast explores untraversed fields of our past that are constantly shaping our world. I am your host, Umar Haq, and today we will be talking about an English translator, William Jones, and his translation of Indian law. Through his life, we will also see the work of British judicial system in India, a brief history about it, and especially when it came to incorporating indigenous laws into the British judicial system within India. So to talk about William Jones, William Jones is a man of many talents. He is a philologist, orientalist, jurist, while also serving as the judge of High Court of Calcutta. He became a student of ancient India and is popularly known for having established the Asiatic Society of Bengal. Now, Jones is considered to be a very central figure when it comes to discussion about India's British judicial system or the judicial system that was established during the colonial rule by the English. He directly worked in the fields of law and literature, which is quite unremarkable even to our generation, where a man is both a poet a translator, and also a judge and a lawyer. At the end of his life, with his remarkable talent for languages, he had learned Latin, Greek, French, Arabic, Hebrew, Turkish, Persian, and even Sanskrit. Yet his understanding of these languages, as he would like to describe it, was not a whole in itself. He did not consider the languages to be a knowledge in and of itself, but he considered them as a means of learning and what allow him to learn more or open him to a much bigger world of knowledge. So before we can understand the role of William Jones in the British justice system in India, let us try to have a brief history about India's judicial system ever since the English arrived on our shores. But before we can understand the life of William Jones in context to the history of British judicial system in India, we'll just get a brief history of the system itself. The East India Company, ever since it arrived on the shores of India and has been trading, has always had to some extent certain judicial powers whenever they have been here. But it was not until the company got its Diwani right for Bengal, Orissa and Bihar in 1765 that they officially became responsible for maintaining justice, law and order in these territories. So when Warren Hastings became the Governor General of India, he instituted a series of reforms through which he wanted to rationalize the legal system that the East India Company had inherited from its predecessors, the Mughals, the Marathas, whatever, in, in this case the Mughals. So the system that previously existed before this was There was a separate civil court for civil matters and a separate criminal court for criminal matters. The British administered the civil courts while the Mughals took care of the criminal courts. The British did not want to intervene too much in the civil courts and the laws that were being established and implemented here. So they organized to administer Hindu laws to the Hindus and the Muslim law to the Muslims. While the Mughals administered criminal courts, they pronounced judgment based on the Muslim law only, that is the Sharia. A striking feature that we can see here is the absence of enforcement of British laws in both of these courts. The English surprisingly believed and agreed unanimously on an ethical principle that the British common law should not be enforced on the Indian population. Why did the British 
believed unanimously that the British law should not be administrated on the Indian population. One of the reasons could be that the English did not want to meddle in the affairs of the justice of the local population of the Indians and that they wanted to make sure that they were deriving their authority and having legitimacy in these lands through whatever ancient laws and text and legal system that already existed and maintain the status quo. And most importantly, retaining these laws in order that they may be considered legitimate rulers in these lands. So this was in a sense their struggle to remain relevant among the people while being foreign to the entire system. The British, although whenever it came to retaining these laws, did not hold a lot of trust among the people who were informing about these laws. For example, when it came to the Hindu law, the British did not trust the local pundits at all. They felt that they could be manipulative. They basically disliked being caught in the struggle of power of these local pundits or being played around with them. So, Hastings commissioned the translation of local Hindu and Muslim legal writings because he did not like to be stuck at the mercy of these local pundits and local muftis who were to tell them what kind of laws that they were supposed to run in these courts. So the first of the translators in the Warren Hastings project was Nathaniel Halhead. His translation, A Code of the Gentoo Law or the Ordination of the Pandits, was translated from Persian, which was originally translated from Sanskrit. And the law in itself was derived by 11 different Bengali pundits of 20 different Sanskrit sources. Now, these sources were first translated into Bengali and then they were translated into Persian. And from Persian, they were translated to English, which you could guess would have created a whole chaos in the translation and a lot would have been lost in it. And Halhead was often mocked for the inaccuracies that occurred in his triple translation of codes. Now, why is Halhead important here? Is so that we can understand about William Jones more clearly and what an asset he was when it came for the British judicial system in India. Now, as I mentioned before, William Jones was not only a man of law, but he was a man of literature. He also translated, he knew multiple languages. So when Jones arrived in India in 1783 to be a judge in the Supreme Court of Calcutta, he had very tall ambitions. In a sense, Jones wanted to bring into effect in India's judicial system a complete code of civil law, or what is called to be Corpus Juris Civilis, the body of civil law. He wanted to make a compilation or a collection of fundamental works in the Indian judicial system. So he would call his work the collection of fundamental works in Indian jurisprudence. So one of his uh, first translation was the Mohammedan law of inheritance, which he completed in 1792, and his second translation were the Laws of Manu in 1796. Both of them were published during his lifetime. So Jones believed that laws similar to languages shared a sense of common primordial source. Now, Jones was popularly known for having proposed the idea that languages originate from one single source, and this source is now unavailable to people, or this language has basically died out. So he says that Sanskrit, Latin, Greek, Persian, Arabic, all of these languages belong to one single language, and these were born out of that particular language, and that language has basically died out. Now, Jones was one of the first people to have brought in this comparison between Sanskrit, Persian, Arabic, Latin, and Greek. 
So he is considered to be pioneer even in the field of translation and comparative uh, linguistics. Now he held this belief when it came to languages and he applied a similar belief or he held a similar belief when it came to laws where he asserted that the laws of Manu were similar to the Roman law that was practiced in ancient Rome. He believed that both these laws had some common primordial source. In accordance with this thinking, Jones asserted that if the native population, that is the Indians, believed that the laws and the rules that were established in the land were of a divine source, then they should not be meddled with. The same way how the British and the British Parliament believes that the laws and the regulation, the customs that are followed in the government and the establishment of the state in England is also derived from a divine source. So British of all the other people should be able to better understand when it comes to a divine primordial source of these legal texts or legal rulings or laws and more. Hence, Jones always asserted that Britishers should not interfere in the matters of the Indians laws and customs and that they should be left on their own or at least whenever it came to their contract and in inheritances. One of the major works that Jones has contributed in India is the effort that he has put towards translating these Persian Sanskrit texts to English so that they can be incorporated into the English judicial system in India. So in the effort of translating the laws of Manu, which uh, Jones believed was so comprehensive and exact that he decided and he believed to call these to institute something called as the Hindu law. So here was a birth of a common law that was to be applied on vast section of society that might have held similar beliefs that derived from one book that is the book of Manu or the laws of Manu. But however, he continued to insist that the laws of Manu must be further systemized in manners that might be suitable to the commercial age that they were living in. So, in the opening remarks of the preface of his book, The Laws of Manu, Jones writes that the laws are neither transferable nor are they translatable, and that they should be in accordance to the customs, traditions, and beliefs that is held by the population of the land and the people who prescribe to that law. This, however, was a very heated topic among the imperial rulers. Uh, one of the conventional arguments was that law cannot be transferred by the right of conquest. For example, North America, which used the British law. But many others also argued that this cannot be done, especially in the cases of trade colonies such as India, where there is already an established country, a law, and an administration. So this was unlike the French colonies who believed that the law can be transferred by the right of conquest, where the French were oblivious to the indigenous law system, legal system or whatever existed, and they continue to establish the French civil code throughout their colonies. But the British tried using their local laws as much as possible, and they tried to adopt them, the laws through these indigenous laws that already existed within the British judicial system so that they can be structured in a way how English common law was practiced. It is easy for them to administer these laws when it is codified to their advantage, while at the same time they are not meddling completely in the affairs and com being completely oblivious to the existing legal system and the administration of the country. So one of the major questions that arises when it comes to Jones was why was Jones so insistent on being culturally relative, especially when the Britishers were hardly respectful of the Irish local customs and religions. One of the reasons of this 
uh, what even I believe might be a reason for this was that they were being pragmatic. The British in India wanted to maintain power. They did not want to disturb the Indian population. And this is also the reason why they never allowed Christian missionaries in India. Law was foundational to the ideology of colonial rule and imperialism, especially for the British, who justified bringing colonization to the lands by saying that they were bringing rule of law into these colonies or countries. Unlike the French, who always said that they were bringing civilization to these countries, that the countries that they are ruling were barbaric and they had to bring introduce civilization to these people. So law, for the most part, remained to be justification for colonial rule uh, for the Britishers in particular. And the bulk of education of the colonial administrators was based on the history, language, text and laws of the Roman Empire. And if there's one thing that we learn from the Romans is that whenever they conquered a new territory, they did not interfere with the religion or the laws of the local inhabitants, but they made sure and often incorporated these things into their own system. So in the long work of cultural and military resistance to anti-colonial movements around the world, one can see that colonial law is rarely ever questioned, right? So there are writers who are providing alternatives to use indigenous languages instead of using the colonizer's language, say English or French, and write in their own local languages to promote literature. While there are politicians who are giving nationalist alternatives to colonial rule in the governments. Never has anyone questioned the colonial law with very few exceptions, except, for example, Mahatma Gandhi. And he himself was a lawyer while he writes in his Hinswaraj about the rejection of colonial law. But on a much bigger surface, no one really objects to the establishment of colonial justice system. And this is carried out even after these states become independent in the creation of the new nation states. India has no exception to this. We still have a legal system that continues unchanged, which was established by the Britishers. So in that sense, ironically, the British justification for colonial rule of our land was accepted and it was never questioned. So whenever the British said that we are colonizing these lands for the sake of establishing of the rule of law and they applied their judicial system. That argument still to this day remains as the de facto accepted justification of colonization. So as a product of globalized imperialism throughout the world, most countries even to this day follow either two legal systems. That is uh, the Roman civil law or the British common law. And these both are themselves interrelated, which even to this day remains surprising with all the effort to remove any traces of colonialism from our world. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. This brings us to the end of our today's episode. We really hope you liked it. If you did, please listen to our other episodes that cover a wide range of India's colonial past. Also consider subscribing to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. We are available on all podcast listening platforms and social media sites. Your support really helps us create more amazing content for you. So now that you've made it to the end of the podcast, we have a little surprise for you. We are going to be turning a year old in January 2021, and we want to celebrate this moment with all of you by having a book giveaway. Uh, the details about this will be posted on our social media sites, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, it'll also be there up on our website. So feel free to check and participate. You have a chance to win books not just a book but books uh, that will be delivered right to your address with a cute message from india colonized so do visit our website www.indiacolonized.com that is colonized with an s to check out more of our work 
uh, we have also compiled a list of books and sources that might intrigue you to explore more on India's modern history or colonial history. So do not forget to dive in and have a look. Until next time, stay safe, stay curious.